Right, hello year 12, this is Mr McLaughlin and today I'm going to be lecturing you on the ways in which a streetcar name desires a tragedy and also discussing the extent to which a streetcar named desire conforms to Aristotle's notions of, of the tragic form. Um, you should only be listening to this podcast once you have completed my do now task, um, which got you to recall um, anything that you that you can possibly remember about Aristotelian tragedies. So hopefully you manage to remember concepts like anagnosis, hubris, the classical unities. But if you haven't managed to remember these things, don't panic, as hopefully I'm going to be mentioning them in my in my lecture today. Um, and as you listen to my to my lecture, please make notes in your electronic exercise books. Please do use a red font. But if you're going to improve my annotations or make annotations of your own, please do this um, using a blue or black font. I'll be referring to several quotations today um, from the play. You can find these quotations in my PowerPoint. Please feel free to copy and paste them now in your electronic exercise books if you so wish, um, because it might uh, they might just help you uh, help you um, follow um, my 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 lecture. Okay. So let's begin. Streetcar as a tragedy. Um. Aristotelian tragedies um, typically make use of tragic heroes, and they tend to be, uh, they tend to explore masculine characters. If you think of the likes of Shakespeare's Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, or even, you know, the greatest tragedy ever written, um, Oedipus uh, Rex, written by Sophocles, of course. Um, they all tend to explore the tragic trajectory of, of masculine characters. And what's already interesting is that William subverts this tradition by exploring the female psyche, putting female characters at, at the forefront of, of his tragedy. And this cannot be underestimated, as this play was written in the 40s. And the, and, and the body of American drama up until this point did not typically feature female tragic heroes or, or heroines. Yeah. So this is all innovative. Yeah. This is all brand new material that we're dealing with. Um, but what's also interesting is that Aristotelian um, tragic heroes are usually high born or, or figures of, of nobility and, 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 stra and, and stature. Um, and this poses some some interesting issues for us as as critics of this play. Blanche is, is high-born, yes, somewhat, and Stanley never lets us forget it. He calls her an empress, you know, president of the United States or even queen of the Nile. I do believe that the character, you know, believes that she is inherently superior because of her ancestry. She inherently believes that um, her her lineage being linked to this golden mythology of of the deep south is linked to progress and 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 this is 
far removed from, from the primitive and jungle-like present or milieu of, of New Orleans. And even the likes of Stanley, whom she labels as the survivor of the Stone Age. And this is the first quotation on the PowerPoint. You know, Blanche says, maybe we are a long way from being made in God's image, but Stella, my sister, there has been some progress since then. The only bitter irony, of course, year 12, is that this particular heritage, this lineage, this dynasty is, is dying, is moribund, is fading and has no place within this new modern world. Um, and, and William's hints at this quite a lot in his play. For instance, I think Stella tells Blanche, you know, don't you think your superior attitude is a bit out of place? Or let's think of uh, Blanche's tiara, for instance, the tiara that Stanley finds in her trunk is is made of rhinestone or next door to glass, as, as Stella puts it hinting at, at the falsity of this of this of this projection of a of a noble female um character yeah blanche perhaps is not this this noble highborn um tragic heroine as she makes out to be now the thing is um aristotelian tragedies focus on, on, on figures of stature who experience a, a fall from, from grace. But the question that we, as critics of this play, must pose is the following, you know, does the, does the protagonist have to be morally good? And we need to look at the next quotation, which is from Blanche, and she's talking about her past. She says, I think it was panic, just panic that drove me from one to another, hunting for some project, uh, for, for some protection, sorry, here and there in the most unlikely places, even at last in a 17-year-old boy. But somebody wrote the superintendent about it. This woman is morally unfit for her position. Now notice the stage directions. She throws back her head with convulsive, sobbing laughter. Then she repeats the statement, gasps and, and drinks. All those symptoms there of, of hysteria, um, you know, really important to, to consider. Now, the thing that she talks about is obviously having a relationship with a, with a teenager. Now, what Williams is drawing at here is the, the concept of desire. Now, desire in the play is presented as a life-giving force um, that staves off death and loss. I'll repeat that. Death is a life-giving force that staves off death and loss. However, the insatiability or the voraciousness of desire ultimately leads to social and moral condemnation. I'll repeat that. The insatiability or voraciousness of desire leads to social and moral condemnation. And we must remember that the mythology of the Deep South stressed highly developed codes of honour and formal patterns of, of behaviour. Now, the character of Blanche Dubois is morally condemned for exercising libidinous pleasures. 
or carnal desires. You know, the insatiability of her carnal desires breaks moral law. And this is why she leaves Laurel. Now, the interesting thing is, is when Stanley gets her a bus ticket, and we're going to be talking about the uh, tragic inevitability in a, in a couple of minutes. But when, when he gets her the, the bus ticket, remember that the Versuviana starts playing. And that use of plastic theatre, the rendering of emotional truths on stage, suggests that Blanche will ultimately have to face the traumas of her of her morally condemned past and we pity and fear her for it remember that the the aristotelian tempering of pity and fear is what we call um catharsis yeah um now in tragedy we must remember of course that there is a conundrum a problem is sexual desire the opposite of death, i.e., does desire or is desire a life-giving force, as I've already mentioned, or is it the very impulse that takes us toward it? Yeah, think of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet or think of Shakespeare's Othello, characters who express the insatiability of desire mark them on a tragic trajectory towards death. Now, an interesting comment that I think you might wish to make. Um, think of Alan Gray's death in the play. Um, Alan Gray's death is, is associated with sexual desires which were considered completely unacceptable within heteronormative 1940s America. Yeah, remember homosexuality was outlawed. Alan Gray expressed his carnal desires by sleeping with another man. Um, and he, of course, kills himself. Yeah, for it. So remember, there's this intrinsic link between desire and death. And we've been talking about this for, for several weeks now. Um, and I think what, what's really interesting, of course, Blanche does the same kind of thing. You know, she's not a homosexual character, but she does exercise the insatiability of desire by having a relationship with, with a 17-year-old boy. Um, and I think it's important to look at the next quotation that I've put on the PowerPoint. She says... What you are talking about, and I th uh, this is to Stella, what you are talking about is brutal desire, just desire, the name of that rattle-trap streetcar that bangs through the quarter. It brought me here where I'm not wanted and where I'm ashamed to be. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to get at here is that desire has placed this character on a on an inevitable tragic trajectory. And this is symbolized by the unstoppable force of the streetcar um, towards death. 
And what we must remember now is the, the dramaturgical setting of Elysian fields, yeah? Let's remember that in Greco-Roman mythology, the Elysian Fields was a place of tranquil harmony where the good were sent in the underworld after death. And I think one reading of the setting of Elysian Fields perhaps suggests that it acts, now this is important, it acts as an inevitable predestination for our tragic heroine. Yeah, it's almost like she is destined to be in this, in this somewhat uh, death-like underworld because she has exercised um, desire, carnal desires. Yeah, she's acted on her, on the impulses of her libidinous desire. Now, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, this this is a play that is very complex. Uh, you know, we cannot just limit our reading of of Blanche's tragedy to just that. We must remember that it's not just Blanche's carnality that renders her as a morally unfit unfit character. Yeah, it's not just her carnality that marks her as a tragic heroine that isn't completely morally good. We must remember that she's also a thief. And I think in the play, Stanley says um, to, to Stella, open your eyes to this stuff. You think she got them out of a teacher's pay. Blanche is also an, an alcoholic. Blanche is a liar, Blanche is a temptress, etc, 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 etc. So, you know, if, if um, tragic heroes are meant to be morally good, who experience some kind of fall from grace, and in some ways Blanche does um, fall from grace, but she's already morally unfit yeah, even before the narrative starts in scene one, we know that she has a history of being morally unfit. She already has been socially and morally condemned. The only irony is, now this is important, the only irony is, is that sexuality, violence, theft, alcoholism, immorality is overt within your leans. Okay, and it's not just overt, it in fact sanctifies it, encourages it. You know, think of I'm thinking of the expressionistic stage directions in in scene ten with the figures of the prostitute, the negro woman, the drunkard. I've talked about this in my previous podcast, but remember when all the social structures of the Kowalski apartments disappear and we get to see the wider setting of New Orleans and how that acts as an analogue for Blanche's own reality that she experiences. I think, you know, it's, it's important to remember that this is a society that encourages sex, that encourages these immoral acts. So if anything, if Blanche is not morally good, neither is the present, yeah? Neither is the setting of New Orleans, neither is this new South. There are flaws within this new American South, yeah? I'd like to go back to, to um, the whole concept of Elysian Fields, the classical illusion. There's an inherent irony there because you know, it's not 
a setting. It is not a place, you know, of tranquil, uh, tranquil harmony where the good were sent in the underworld after death. You know, it directly contrasts with bitter irony the events that take place within New Orleans. Think about, you know, the rape scene. Uh, think about um, every time uh, Stanley Stanley hits um, Stella, for instance. Yeah. Um, and what 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 we must remember what we must remember of course if i want if i go back to to the rape scene the fact that it is omitted um on stage suggests that not only that sexuality is overt in your leans but criminal acts and and the misuse of sexuality and power is still very much hidden with this society and and by eliding that that um, moment, what Williams is doing is he's highlighting the flaws within this new society. Okay, so um, I think that's something that you really need to write down. It's not like Blanche is morally unfit and she's coming to this paradise harmonious underworld. No, it's almost like Williams creates a degree of ambiguity there. Blanche is morally unfit. So is the setting. Yeah. So it's almost like everyone is to blame here. Um, but there is there's something else. And I was thinking about this when I was planning for today's lecture. Who is the real tragic hero of a streetcar named Desire? Could you argue, in fact, that the character of Stanley Kowalski, the 100 percent American hero, the, the character who prevents the, the likes of Blanche from threatening the sanctity and stability of his own territory. Is he the hero? And I know a lot of, a lot of uh, critics have argued that Blanche is the villain. Yeah, Stanley is the one who, um, who is, you know, the, the, the tragic hero in, in this play. And that is for you to, to consider. I obviously, I'm always uh, Team Blanche, um, but you could argue that 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 Williams problematizes the notion of who is a tragic hero. If you think of you know Shakespearean tragedies, it's very obvious who the tragic heroes are. Yeah, um, Macbeth is a tragic hero. Um, Hamlet is a tragic hero, but in A Streetcar Named Desire, if you think of my deep thinking challenge, you know, to what extent does a streetcar conform to Aristotle's notions of the tragic form? Well, in some ways, he, you know, he does problematize it. Who is the tragic hero here? Um, now, in order to think of specific quotations to support my points, if you go back to my to my PowerPoint, you know, Stanley says to Stella, Stella, it's going to be all right after she goes and after you've had the baby. It's going to be all right again uh, between you and me, the, the way that it was. You remember the the way that it was, the nights we had together. God, honey, it's going to be sweet when we can make noise in the night the way that we used to and get the coloured lights going with nobody's sister behind the curtains to hear us. You know, we must remember that um, Blanche does does threaten the harmony, the sanctity of this sexually overt and sexually charged environment. Can we blame Stanley? Yeah. So lots lots of things to consider there. 
And another quotation that I find um, quite interesting is Stanley in scene 10. He says, um, when the telephone rings and they say, you've got a son, I'll tear this off and wave it like a flag. Um, and then he shakes out a brilliant pyjama coat. Lots of things to explore there. You know, ultimately, does he emerge as some kind of triumphant figure? You know, he's been through several obstacles. He fought at Salerno. He, of course, the whole sanctity of his of of his home was threatened by the likes of of Blanche Dubois. You know, if if Blanche is a villain, she does threaten his entire um identity, his entire culture. Um so if um when when he does have a child, he does emerge as some kind of victor. Yeah. Um and then that really complicates the notion of whether streetcar named desire is a tragedy because Aristotle believes that there must be some kind of catastrophic ending. Yeah, so if Stanley, if Stanley is the tragic hero, um, then is there a catastrophic ending with him emerging as some kind of victor? And we're going to be talking about that um, in a couple of minutes' time, about, you know, catastrophic endings. But hopefully I've given you lots of things to consider there. Um, something else that Aristotle also made um, um, aware um, what, what? Sorry, let me rephrase that. What the the Greek tragedians explored was um, that you know tragedy focuses on figures of stature who fall from grace, also implicate others, and it's usually a family, or a group, or even a society. So, can you think about the ways in which Blanche's fall from grace implicates an entire society, an entire dynasty? Okay, so that's another point that you might wish to make. Um, something else uh, that I found, having studied quite a few tragedies in my lifetime, is that tragic protagonists are usually isolated from his or her society. When you come to study Hamlet next year, the character of Hamlet is very much ostracised from the world of, of, of Denmark. Um, if you think about, you've, most of you have studied Macbeth. Yeah, Macbeth is very much ostracized from, from the from the world in which in which he inhabits, especially towards the end of the play. Blanche Dubois is also isolated from her society, um, from the society in which she currently inhabits. And there are two quotations on the PowerPoint that suggest this. You know the quote, um, and she's talking to Stella. I don't understand your indifference. Is this a Chinese philosophy you've cultivated? Um, and, you know, Blanche's iconic line, whoever you are, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. Everything um, that Blanche experiences in the play um, within this new world is a Chinese philosophy. Um, everything within this impersonal world um, suggests that Blanche is depending on the kindness of strangers. Everyone is a stranger to her. The ultimate irony is, of course, in that line is, you know, even um, Stella, um, somebody who is very close to 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 Blanche, because, of course, she's a, a direct family member, is the one that sets her off to um, her ultimate tragic outcome, which is, of course, 
um, being sent off to a, a mental institution. Um, something else, and I did mention this already, um, Aristotle believed that the conclusion of a tragedy must be catastrophic. Um, and um, the catastrophic conclusion is inevitable. So there are a couple of things I'm going to ask you to write down. I'm going to speak quite slowly because um, there's going to be quite a lot of things that you need to, to make a note of. Within tragedies, or within a particular tragedy, the protagonist is usually caught by operating forces that are beyond his or her control. Okay, And this brings in the element of fate. Fate is recognised to be omnipresent or even omnipotent in, uh, within the narrative of, of a tragedy. Think about it. The free will of, of any tragic hero tends to be overpowered by their preordained fates. Yeah. Um, hence why, if you think about it, a tragedy or tragedy occurs um, when despite a character's brave efforts and noble intentions, he or she faces death simply because they are destined to die. OK, now lots of things to to take note of here. So tragedy equals the human or emphasises the human limitations of the protagonist. Um, and Aristotle and the Greek tragedians like, like you know, like Sophocles, they very much emphasised um, this dimension beyond the human world. Yeah, and they call this the metaphysical dimension. And this is very much ingrained within tragedies because... Um, Characters ultimately have a complete lack of control, and that is what builds their sense of suffering. And in order for there to be tragedy or some kind of tragedy, characters need to suffer. And there are loads and loads of quotations um, that support that support this. So if you look at the quotations that I've put on the PowerPoint, Blanche mentions the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. Yeah, there are several astrological references in the play Blanche fails to read here her own tragic destiny her own tragic inevitability because very much like the Pleiades yeah she's going to find that her own tragic outcome is is rape yeah and um, if you think about the young man he says, I'm collecting for the evening star. Um, that astrological reference, you know, this motif, suggests that Blanche is predestined to exercise those carnal desires yet again. Yeah, that insatiability of desire that will ultimately not only, you know, lead her to some kind of social and moral condemnation, but also lead her to, to death. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've got several, several more references. Um, you've got, um, for instance, Blanche's line, the blind are leading the blind. And uh, you might be thinking, how on earth does this lead to this idea of, of Blanche um, being presented as having a complete lack of control? She's at the mercy of some kind of um, higher higher order fate 
think about it. The blind are leading the blind. She is a visionless, directionless character. She is highly dependent on the kindness of 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 other characters of strangers and this is echoed in the stage directions in scene 11 uh this is when she's hanging on to the doctor um william says she allows him to lead her as if she were blind blanche ultimately um has a complete lack of control yeah she is predestined to to die um she is at the mercy of of her um of some kind of higher fate. And now you might be thinking, how does this link to the likes of Stanley Kowalski? Well, look at my next quotation. He says, ha ha, rain from heaven. It's almost like whilst Blanche is destined to die, whilst she has a complete lack of control, it's almost like Stanley has been blessed with divine intervention. It's almost like his own free will is aligned with the the will of the gods. Yeah, he is destined to be victorious. He is destined to survive within this world. Um, and this is simply echoed in the next quotation when he says, he's talking about uh, Salerno. He says, he says, I figured that four out of five would not come through, but I would, and I did. And I put that down as a rule to hold front uh, position in this rat race you've got to believe you are lucky stanley has been blessed by the gods yeah and it almost this builds a sense of tragedy because you know it's almost like blanche blanche's tragic destiny is inevitable yeah and it's almost unfair if you think about it this is a play of chance this is a play that uses gaming motifs time and time again and um, it's almost it's almost i don't know if this is too much of a stretch but do you, you know it's it's almost unfair that stanley seems to emerge as some kind of victorious character he's been blessed by the gods to be victorious whereas blanche doesn't yeah, and I think this is how tragedy emerges. Um, now, what else? What else can we talk about in terms of um, tragedy? We know very, very well that um, Aristotle believed that catastrophic ends, uh, the catastrophic end of the play, results from a mistaken action, which in turn arises from a tragic flaw or from a tragic error in judgment, and often. The, the tragic flaw in, in tragedy tends to be a hubris or an excessive pride that causes the hero to ignore um, some kind of divine warning or to break a moral law. Now, I'd be very careful to to argue, you know, what is what is Blanche's hubris? You know, she is a proud character. We know that. I think I'd be very careful to try and pinpoint what her hamarsha is, what her tragic flaw is. You know, is her is her flaw the insati the insatiability of of desire? Is her flaw the fact that she tries to uphold Apollonian ideals of purity and self restraint? Um, you know, it's very difficult to pinpoint. Um, but I think what you need to write down is, you know, is the tragedy of a streetcar named Desire the result of an individual failing 
Is it the direct result of Blanche failing in something? Or is it that, you know, there might be wider social forces and conflicts at play? Are, are these wider social forces to blame? Okay. Um, now, something else, and we've talked about this, Tragedy is a form that excites the Aristotelian tempering of pity and fear. And we've talked about the tempering of pity and fear. We fear for Blanche's future. We pity the character of Blanche. Um, but the thing that you need to start thinking about is, do we feel better or enlightened or uplifted after watching the, the tragedy of a streetcar named Desire? Remember that Aristotle stressed the cathartic engagement of the audience. We should feel cleansed and purified right at the very end. And I would like to argue that, in fact, William subverts that. The very tragedy of this play is that life continues. Life goes on. This, this cruel world of New America will survive. Yeah, so I think there's lots to consider there. Um, and I think you need to, to write down, you know, does tragedy give us hope for the future? Or does it portray life as meaningless and chaotic? Um, if you think about many Shakespearean tragedies, for instance, there is always some kind of glimmer of, of restoration of order. If you think of Macbeth right at the very end of the play, um, you, you know, the fact that um, Malcolm is seated on the throne, there is some kind of restoration of order. If you think of Hamlet, I know you haven't read it just yet, but the fact that, um, you know, there is some kind of restoration of order. We're going to be talking a lot about this next year with uh, Fortinbras on the throne might suggest that there is some kind of glimmer of optimism. But for a streetcar named Desire, is there, is there some kind of um, hope right at the very end? Is there kind of restoration of order? Yes, there is. But does it portray life as being meaningless and chaotic? Yes, it does as well. So lots of things to explore there. Something else, we're nearly at the end, ladies and gentlemen, because there's so much to consider. In tragedies, the protagonist must suffer terribly. We've talked about this, but the suffering often seems disproportionate the suffering often seems disproportionate to his or her culpability. You know, when Blanche says, and this is a quotation in your handout, deliberate cruelty is not forgivable. It is the one unforgivable thing, in my opinion, and it is the one thing of which I have never, never been guilty. You know, Blanche is um, very much culpable in the play. She is to blame for a lot of things that happens. But what she suffers for it is disproportionate to her culpability. You know, deliberate cruelty, as she talks about, is disproportionate to her very own portion of, 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 of blame in the play, yeah? So think, think about it. Does she really deserve rape? No, of course not. It is a very inhumane thing. Um, now, something else about, about tragedy. Um, 
is that the narrative always progresses from order to disorder, harmony to chaos. What you must remember is um, the very arrival of Blanche in the play, you know, and, and, and Williams uses the stage direction that she is incongruous to the setting in both her appearance and her attitudes towards the events she witnesses throughout the play, directly confronts the equilibrium where violence and profanity are valued over politeness and kindness. I'll repeat that. She directly confronts the equilibrium where violence and profanity are valued over politeness and, and kindness. And her iconic line, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers, is a very good example of that. You know, Blanche moves into an orderly world, yes, and then it moves into disorder, yeah, it moves into chaos, but then it emerges as some kind of orderly um, environment later on. Um, a couple of things as well to remember. Remember the, the, the social commentary um, of, of the street cries at the start of scene four. This is a quotation um, in the PowerPoint. It is early the following morning. There's a confusion of street cries like a choral chant. That is, is very much functioning as a Greek chorus, yeah, commenting on the tragedy of, of, of what is um, being presented on, on stage. Um, so lots, lots and lots of things to consider. There's only one last point that I would like to make, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the notion of classical unities. There are three unities. There are three unities according to um, Aristotle. The first unity, the first unity is that of place. Aristotle believed. Aristotle believed that uh, the action should be limited to one um, to one setting, and that, of course very much happens in in a streetcar named desire um we we only have one single physical location that is of the kowalski apartment and and sort of the the immediate surroundings of of the apartment remember williams could have chosen to set part of the play in um bell reeve but he doesn't yeah um, and 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 therefore Williams does conform to unity of place. The second classical unity is that of action, the unity of action. So Aristotle believed that there should be no subplots. The entire narrative should be very much focused on on the primary narrative, and so um, ultimately all the events that take place inevitably lead to the tragic hero's um, destruction. Now that very much happens in A Streetcar Named Desire. There aren't any subplots per se. Um, all the events lead to Blanche's demise. But the third classical unity is that of time. And um, what Aristotle believed was that the action in a tragedy should occur over a period of no more than 24 hours. We know this does not take place in a streetcar. Uh, the, the play takes place over, over the summer. So the play starts in May and then it ends, I think, 
towards um, September. Um, so it doesn't take place over 24 hours. Um, so Williams does subvert that classical unity. Um, however, it does take place within one season. And that's the season of summer, that sultriness, um, the, you know, the, the, the heat is very much uh, um, prevalent within, within, within that particular season. Wow. So lots, lots and lots of things to consider uh, about the extent to which a streetcar is a tragedy. And hopefully I've given you some food for for thought. What I'd like you to do now is um, I have uploaded an A-star essay on streetcar as a tragedy. And this essay got full marks. What I'd like you to do is to copy and paste this essay in your Google Doc English exercise book. Um, and I'd like you to do two things for me. First of all, can you change the font of any references to Williams's stagecraft to red um, and change the font of any context? references to green okay um so once you've done that that's uh, pretty much this lesson over and done with the only thing that i haven't mentioned in my lecture is of course um the uh, essay that you have already read um which was on miller's conceptions of tragedy as we've already discussed that um a couple of weeks ago i'm not going to be uh, recapping uh, that essay at this particular point but of course that reading still stands yeah and you can still use miller's ideas for instance you know the idea of uh, there must be a glimmer of optimism within a tragedy etc all of that the stability of the cosmos all of that you can still use use in a streetcar essay that's it from me ladies and gentlemen until next time goodbye <laughs>